Welcome, listeners. In today's podcast, we wanted to talk about, each of us talk about a book that had a large or outsized influence on us, um, which is a very broad category because there are obviously a lot of books that may have have influenced us at various points in time. Um, And I certainly had quite a good time trying to go through my history of reading and thinking about which books influenced me, which ones I really most enjoyed, and also thinking a little bit about why I really enjoyed it and whether or not it was that particular moment in time that the perfect book just came across my lap. And you'll notice that we have picked two very different books among the many options that we could be talking about today. So we'll have a bit of contrast in part one and two of this podcast. So welcome, Amal. Thanks, Jacob. Great to be here. So I'm going to kick us off a little bit and I want to go through a bit of how I was thinking about which book to choose. Um, Now, naturally being in the middle of a PhD, my head went first to a variety of books that may have changed my worldview on various topics I've recently been reading. And I ended up coming to a kind of a different perspective, which was that I wanted to pick something to talk about that had an outsized influence on me at a young age. And that was partly a reflection of the fact that I'm soon to be a father and that one of the great things that I experienced with my dad was being read to as a child. And I recall, for example, having had almost every one of the famous five series by Enid Blyton um, being read to me and being completely engrossed in these stories. Um, And that was certainly one option I thought about. Another was To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee that I also had read to me at a very young age where I could empathise with our protagonist, Scout, but probably didn't quite understand the sense of justice it was inspiring in me until I read it at a later age. So it got me thinking about which, which books inspired me to read more, which books inspired me to open up my imagination and to depart from being read to by my father and to read myself. And I landed on a classic, which is The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, which needs probably no substantial uh, introduction. So I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of why I chose it. So it was read to me at an absurdly young age. I actually don't know why my dad decided that at something around six or seven, he was going to read us The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And it is something I've actually revisited recently um, for the first time as an audiobook format. Um, which is a whole different experience when someone else reads the songs from the book to you in a different manner to what you read it yourself. And as a child, I certainly wouldn't have got half of the meaning and half of the density in the book. But what struck me rereading it again for what would be now the third time is the combination of the simplicity in the story and the complexity of the culture and the world that sits around that beautifully simple story. So I wanted to probably start with just a little bit of an idea of what the book's about for for those of you who may have been living under a rock and not um, come across it, but it was basically a genre setting um, fantasy book that included this incredible world of hobbits and dwarves and elves um, in which there is a essentially a good and an evil. And the story is really about a hobbit and his companions attempting to destroy this one ring of evil to stop um, Sauron from destroying the free world. And this was written predominantly during World War II, though Tolkien claims that it has very little to do with, with World War II. Um, but it certainly mirrors some of the patterns of Tolkien's life in that he lost most of his friends in World War I um, and he lost um, many more in World War II. Um, and this parallel of, of purity of good and evil and there is an adventure and a quest, um, it certainly inspired um, creativity and imagination 
for me as a child in a way that I think a few other books did, despite the fact that there's certainly things in there now I'm rereading it that I would not have understood at all <laughs> as a child. Um, so what I found probably most interesting about it when I've gone over a little bit about what makes it such an incredible story. And I think the thing for me that is most underrated about Tolkien's work is that it's well known that it's a genre setting fantasy novel, that all almost all following fantasy novels have come about looking to be the next Lord of the Rings. And there's a focus on the story and the plot and some of the characters, but Tolkien didn't come at this in the way that I think a lot of uh, fantasy writers nowadays would come at this problem because Tolkien was a professor of English language. And Tolkien from his teenage years invented languages. And this is what he did for fun. And he's once, I've got a quote from him in which he says, what I think is a primary fact about my work that is all of a piece and fundamentally linguistic in inspiration. It is not a hobby in the sense of something quite different from one's work taken up as a relief outlet. The invention of languages is the foundation. The stories were made rather to provide a world for the languages than the reverse. To me, a name comes first and a story follows. I should have preferred to write in Elvish, but of course such a work as The Lord of the Rings has been edited and only as much language has been left in as I thought would be stomached by readers. It is to me anyway, largely an essay in linguistic aesthetic, as I sometimes say to people who ask me, what is it all about? Now, Tolkien created many languages. So just as, as an example, over the course of his life, well beyond The Lord of the Rings, he continued to invent elven languages. He had as many as 15 languages and dialects with distinct grammar and vocabulary in Elvish, based off a proto-language, similar to the way that Latin is a proto-language for many other modern languages. Um, and he continued to construct these as a life work, not necessarily even as part of a, a story. And I think what is fascinating when you go over this is, as, as a book and as a series of books, is that it's written, it tells the story of language and culture, the input of poetry and songs and those things with deeper meanings and in alternate languages that give actual face to these distinctly created cultures that are vastly different from our own. And I think it gives a really, the, the ability to set a simple story within this complex world that has so many layers because we can move with our protagonists from one elvish place to another elvish place that have their own distinct culture, language, poetry, um, vocabulary that differs despite being the same race, that we can move from different areas of men that have their own style of language and tone to another area of men that are very um, different and have that culture sitting behind, behind them. So all the work that went into some of these other books like The Hobbit and The Silmarillion build this world. And it's in this world building that is based on language that everything else kind of flows out of. And I think that it's actually quite incredible to think of how much work he did over the, the entirety of his life to create um, such an incredible linguistic setting for everything else to be able to happen. Um, so when I come to the story and when I came, when I came to, I, I kind of came to this thinking, why did it inspire me so much to go and, and read? Because after I read Lord of the Rings at the age of seven or eight, I went and I, I think I exclusively read fantasy books for about 10 years after that until at some point I, I put them down, but it just, it, I was just captured by all of it. And I probably didn't understand what it was that was capturing me. Um, but going back over it now and hearing all the extra layers that I didn't hear on the first read through, um, it's just, it's just phenomenal to, to really sit down and slowly go through and understand just how much, uh, is unsaid behind uh, this world that he created and these people that he created. Um, so that, I don't actually know quite where to go there. So this, this, is, this is something that probably took, took me in at the time. And I, I love that when I reread it even now, 
there's a naivete to your main characters in The Hobbits and there's a simplicity to we are taking a ring from, you know, we stumbled upon evil ring, we're taking the evil ring to fiery pit to destroy. The story superficially just seems so simple. Like it feels like if you just told someone the basis of the story, I don't think you would understand quite what you're, what you're experiencing by going on this journey, on this journey with them. Um, you know, even down to the random characters in the first book alone, they come across Tom, Tom Bombadil, who is a mythical figure. And there's an entire history attached to Tom Bombadil, attached to the elder days, to the previous eras that he has constructed this entire history. Um, that Tom Bombadil has a relationship with certain particular characters and historical time periods and elements and is connected to the modern story simply by his fleeting presence. Um, but he himself has a long and deep history. Um, so I want to give you a taste of that. And I want to give it to you from, for those who haven't read the book, from just the very first page um, of how much depth there is sitting behind the characters. So this is from the prologue concerning hobbits. Hobbits are an unobtrusive but very ancient people, more numerous formerly than they are today, for they love peace and quiet and good-tilled earth. A well-ordered and well-farmed countryside was their favourite haunt. They do not and did not understand or like machines more complicated than a forge bellows, a watermill or a hand loom, though they were skillful with tools. Even in ancient days, they were, as a rule, shy of the big folk, as they call us, and now they avoid us with dismay and are becoming hard to find. They are quick of hearing and sharp-eyed, and though they are inclined to be fat and do not hurry unnecessarily, they are nonetheless nimble and deft in their movements. They possessed from the first the art of disappearing swiftly and silently when large folk whom they did not wish to meet come blundering by, and this art they have developed until to men it may seem magical. But hobbits have never, in fact, studied magic of any kind, and their elusiveness is due solely to a professional skill that heredity and practice and a close friendship with the earth have rendered inimitable by bigger and clumsier races. For they are a little people, smaller than dwarves, less stout and stocky, that is, even when they are not actually much shorter. Their height is variable, ranging between two and four feet of our measure. They seldom now reach three feet, but they have dwindled, they say, and in ancient days they were taller. According to the Red Book, Vanderbrass took Bullroarer, son of Isengrim II, was four foot five and able to ride a horse. He was surpassed in all Hobbit records only by two famous characters of old. But that curious matter is dealt with in this book. Um, from the first, he just, he has this world constructed in his head. He, it, it's speaking from a point of, of an existing history somehow that is so voluminous um, as to be, I don't think, I don't think it can be really replicated as much as people are trying. And I think that's um, an incredible accomplishment to be able to write a genre setting book that somehow no one is able to surpass or come close to. And I think that the genesis of it is his love of language and the fact that it didn't start with a story. It started with language and the influence that has on culture and everything else flowed out of that, um, which I just think is... Um, as much as Lord of the Rings is appreciated, I think that element of it to me is underappreciated. So obviously I chose a book um, for this podcast in order to deliver that monologue because it had such an outsized effect on me um, and I wanted to tell that story because mm. it's obviously important to me and important to the way that I developed my reading habit and my imagination. In going through this process, there are obviously other ways you can choose a book and other reasons to choose a book. And Amal, you've picked something called The Beginning of Infinity, Explanations That Transform the World by David Deutsch. Why did you choose this book? Yeah, excellent question, uh, Jake. This is my book of the decade. Um, it's a book that I'm reading and rereading and 
each time come away feeling um, smarter or it has fundamentally altered my view of reality. Um, David Deutsch is a physicist, so I suppose a lot of what comes through the book is um, explanations about the world from a from you know someone with a scientific background um, who uses in physics what they call first principles um, sort of base thinking, which is kind of stripping away all of the assumptions that one has about how we organize ourselves or how anything in particular is organized. Um, so really thinking about things from the ground up. You know, a lot of people say they do that, but um, I think uh, David David certainly does like a phenomenal job of explaining how we go from, you know, atoms to, you know, it's, it's subatomic parts and, um, and, and then, you know, within that at the most sort of... Um, at its smallest uh, level, and then and then all the way up, you know what that enables us to do um, as a civilization. And and so rather than um, <laughs> rather than choosing to talk about the entire book um, because it is it is very rich, and just to give you a flavour of kind of what David talks about. Um, and if you're really interested, of course, read the book. But there's also an, a phenomenal podcast by. Brett Hall, um, who is Australian, um, who breaks down some of the challenging concepts in in this book. But David really uh, makes a concerted effort to explain why humans are different uh, compared to every other um, life form. And and I'll sort of dig into that a little bit more because the, the chapter that I'm going to use to illustrate kind of David's style of thinking um, is called The Spark. So anyway, um, going back to the, some of the concepts that David talks about, um, the first big one is the reach of explanations. So this is really uh, what they call um, the theory of knowledge. So um, in academia, they call it epistemology, but it's essentially it's how do we arrive at a particular um, worldview of how things work. Um, so... David's got a formula essentially on how um, explanations can really be a universal and can really fundamentally alter um, the universe. Um, and so just running through kind of a few interesting topics, the spark I talked about. Um, and so there, that is really humans being um, fundamentally very different to every other life form. Um, the creation of new knowledge, um, creativity being a an artificial enterprise, so very different from biological um, evolution. Why um, knowledge is actually an unbounded thing. Um, the case for optimism. Um, quantum theory, um, choice theory. Um, how culture and cultures developed and spread. So this is a lot of, you know, mimetic theory. Um, how cre creativity occurs, uh, sustainability, and really thinking about in a mental model way, um, where are we? Are we at the beginning or are we at the end? And, and I thought this is really important at a time when uh, there's so many pessimists in the world. Um, it's, it's quite important to to strip all of that away um, and really think about from the ground up, you know, why are humans different and, um, you know, what is the impact that we can have in the world? So so I hope that gives you a flavour, Jacob, of, you know, really why I thought this was a pricing book at this time. Um, and, of course, I'll sort of dig into um, the spark um, a little bit more. Back to you. So I'm wondering. The the, the question I kind of had when I when I saw kind of this on the list is that mm -hmm. I, I when you see someone who's taken such an ambitious, wide ranging topic as explaining our 
importance and the implications of science and explanations for the world. Would this have had the same effect on you if you'd read it at a different point in your life? Is the first thing I, I was kind of thinking. I'm going to focus on that first before we yes. get into a bit of what he gets into and why he does it. Um, because I imagine there's there's many books I've read that I've kind of, you know, maybe if I'd read them at a different time, they would have hit me a little bit differently. And um, I wanted to zoom in on that a little mm. bit, especially about pessimism. Um, and whether, do you feel like this book has made you more optimistic about the world? Do you think that was his goal? Uh, so I would say David seeks truth and, and that's something I'm very interested in, like what is the truth? And um, at a fundamental level, I think, I mean, we're, we're all, I think, uh, looking at the world, particularly in a pandemic era, and really doing some meta-thinking, what is, you know, human, human civilization? I mean, look, the pandemic really could have taken out a big chunk of the world, right? It, at, at, at the start of 2020, it was rising exponentially. Um, it could have wiped out, you know, 100 million plus um, people. So, I mean, we're, you know, we're very lucky that it didn't. Um, so I guess, you know, in a sense, that's the context in which I'm thinking about this. Um, in terms, so, so there's plenty of reason to be pessimistic, I, I suppose, in, in such a context. But then, you know, the, the you and I, I think one of the thing, great things about our conversations that, I, that I've really enjoyed over the years is because we read quite a bit of history and we're very interested in it, we are generally able to place what is occurring now in the context of the sort of the grand sweeping, um, you know, timeline of history, historical events. So 2022, what preceded that? And I think we've talked about this before, but, you know, if we just kind of go back, um, we are now sort of in that post-information age or maybe even in just the information age, you know, time will tell um, exactly where we are. But, you know, that's a fairly recent phenomenon, um, say 19, 1990s onwards, perhaps, that with the knowledge economy. And then before that, really, for the last 240 years, um, you know, we've been, um, you know, we had we had really um, been part of the Industrial Revolution and that obviously organised a lot of society in terms of familial structure, in terms of um, the work week, etc. And the, But then before that, um, you know, it was the farming age starting about 12,000 years ago. Um, and Yuval Noah Hariri's book's really good on this. It really um, kind of shows all the steps um, of human history. And then before that, we were hunter-gatherers. And of course, these things are overlap. You know, some, some civilizations are still more in the hunter-gatherer stage or the farming stage, and some never hit the industrial age. But I'm kind of talking at, um, at a macro level. Um, but for all of human history, we were hunter-gatherers you know, until 12,000 years ago. Um, so I think it's really important to kind of see the arc in which we, we are kind of going and then placing where we are in history. Um, and so, you know, the, the pessimist will, you know, it, it's very easy to be a pessimist in a sense because you can just say, oh, we're all doomed, um, civilization is going to collapse. And then you find a bunch of like contempor contempor contemporaneous data points to um, fulfill what you, you, you your worldview is but actually I think you'll find in the grand scheme of history you know um, and there's a good book about this even though I don't entirely agree with everything in it um, the better angels uh, of man I think it's called by um, Stephen Pinker and essentially you know almost on all fronts you know COVID aside, you know, disease, disease is um, far lower than it ever has been. Um, you know, infant mortality is, is, you know, is far lower than it's ever been. Life expectancy is far higher than it's ever been. Um, our access to information for, for the largest number of people, i.e., you know, 3 billion people today have smartphones with instant access to information um, and the Library of Alexandria by Google. Um, on so many dimensions, you know, and sanitation, you know, access to clean water, etc. All of these things 
on all these metrics, um, civilization is actually on the way up. Um, and, and so, you know, you, if you take that view, which is my worldview and certainly David's view in a sense, um, the case to be optimistic is far, far stronger. So, and, and the thing, the, the thing that sets humans apart compared to all other life forms is that we've created knowledge, you know, we've, um, and David goes into kind of how we do that, just TLDR, it's, you know, we, we kind of look at the world and say, oh, well, th this is an, in, an inadequate explanation of the world. And David gives a really good example, which is uh, Galileo, um, you know, look, in, in looked at basically the Earth's motion around the planets um, and just found that the current explanation provided by the church at the time was completely inadequate. Um, and so... Uh, Galileo basically had a different explanation, the heliocentric theory. Um, and of course, you, you know, he started with um, a conjecture and then he found data points um, by putting a telescope to the sky. Um, and then, you know, was obviously proven in, in retrospect to be correct, um, at, at least directionally correct. Um, so that, you know, that exercise that Galileo and subsequent um, scientists have gone through, I going to the moon would only have occurred if we had Newton's theory of gravity. I mean, that's all knowledge, right? And the creation of knowledge is kind of what stands between us and infinity. And I think that's, that is the case for optimism. Um, and that is really what drew me uh, to this book, Jacob. Fantastic answer, and I've been taking notes on which on things to follow up. So, one of the things that I wanted to jump on first before we come back to the the theory of knowledge is I'm I'm really interested in kind of placing placing this book um, in some of the contemporaries because you talked about two of the con, uh, the contemporaries. So, Yuval Noah Harari, um, who's tackled obviously like the um, I'm trying to find the, name, the exact name of his book about the history of humankind and, and sapiens, a brief history of humankind is the name of the book, and he's kind of a He's an historian, he's a social cultural historian, and he's tackled it from kind of that broad perspective. Um, he has done some work on the histories of science, but more is the historical um, perspective. You talk about Steven Pinker, who's a psychologist and a linguist as primarily. And he, so he's come at some of these enlightenment questions and he's, he, he's a very common one um, on these sorts of questions, I, I suppose, or more prominent, common is probably not the right word. Um, and I'm, so what I'm wondering, I suppose, is what is the contribution of David Deutsch to these sort of broader meta discussions of humankind? Like, what does the physics, the, being a physicist, what does that particular angle add to these perspectives? Yeah, excellent question. So um, I'll kind of summarise kind of some of David's uh, meta views. Um, so the... So, and this 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 kind of strikes at the heart of a lot of pessimists. So there's a number of them. So in in times past, um, humans have always had a, an what we call an anthropocentric approach. That is, humans are at the center of the earth, um, and it's kind of the the thing around the earth being the, the center of the world. They call that the geocentric theory. So this idea that humans have cosmic significance, they are at the hub um, of the universe. Um, and that is the, really the thinking that existed in the pre-Enlightenment period. Um, and that is what, you know, one, one would call a very parochial worldview. You know, it's about humans experiencing things um, rather than what's actually there. Um, but inversely, there's another theory that... Um, uh, we, we can also talk about, which Stephen Hawking has written about, which is the anti-anthropocentric worldview, which is humans are unimportant. Um, sometimes this is referred to as the principle of mediocrity. Um, so just to quote from Stephen Hawking, um, he says, our humans are just a chemical scum on the surface of a typical planet that orbits around a typical star on the outskirts of a typical galaxy. So humans are like so 
ordinary in the in the grand scheme of things. So I've provided kind of two worldviews that are obviously quite uh, diametrically opposed. The first is that humans are at the center of the universe, and the second is humans are just so typical of the universe and therefore completely unimportant. And parochialism um, is really just mistaking what one um, a person, a human, observes for reality and for universal laws. Um, there's another worldview, which is, um, you know, they call it the spaceship Earth worldview, which is um, the biosphere, you know, Earth has been created um, with plentiful uh, supply, um, you know, lush greenery, heaps of fruits and vegetables and you know, awesome water supply. And, you know, like directionally that is kind of true um, in the sense that there are those resources at our disposal and the earth can seem to be this awesome place, um, which is very different from the rest of the universe. So I'll kind of go into like why that's wrong. Um, and David kind of um, has a really good explanation for that. So that's another worldview, the spaceship Earth or the biosphere worldview, that the Earth is, um, you know, artificially constructed and, and, and provides for us in a very special way. So I'll kind of now go into, you know, why people are actually, so there's like a hybrid here that, you know, will explain why people are actually significant in the cosmic scheme of things. Um, as opposed to what the principle of mediocrity slash anti-anthropocentrism um, states. So here's why, and here's why Hawking's worldview that the Earth and humans are just typical things in the universe. For, for one, we are far from typical in terms of matter, like physical matter in the universe. For one, 80% of the matter that is um, out there which is invisible, we call it dark matter, it neither emits or absorbs light. So we don't see it. What we see is just simply ordinary matter. And that's actually only a fifth of the world. It's only 20%. So we don't actually see four-fifths of the world. So the 20% that we can see, secondly, is, you know we detect the, um, through... Um, basically, uh, infrared detection. So we glow, we glow continuously. Um, that's why we we know we kind of exist and we give off heat. We don't see that; it's not visible. So the parochial worldview would be that you know it only really exists if you can see it, if we can observe it. But we now know through knowledge and creating the right kind of detectors, infrared light detectors, that we too glow. And the key thing here is, so from that, we now know concentrations of matter as dense as ourselves, you know, through the heat radiation, and our planet and stars, though they are numerous, they are not typical of the universe. They are so uncommon and completely isolated as a phenomenon. So what is a typical place in the universe? You know, the universe is mostly a vacuum. And ordinary matter, the 20% that I described before, it's only familiar to us because we are made of it. And because of our untypical location near large concentrations of it. So we must not extrapolate for what we can see for the entire universe, which is, which is kind of what the, the popular um, view tends to be. So I've described here, at least from David's kind of... Um, um, worldview that we are um, very much uncommon an uncommon form of ordinary matter and just to really like make that case really clear the, the most common form of uh, matter is actually plasma so that is atoms dissociated into the electrically charged components they typically emit bright visible light because they're in the stars and therefore extremely hot and as I said before, by contrast, we only emit infrared light 
because we contain liquids and complex chemicals, as you know, that run through your body, which can really only exist at a much lower range of temperatures. The universe, by and large, is pervaded by microwave radiation, the afterglow of the Big Bang. Its temperature is about 2.7 Kelvin, which, just to give you an indication in Celsius, is about 270 degrees Celsius colder than the freezing point of water. And at those temperatures, the glow of ordinary matter is effectively extinguished. So the result of the reason I say all that is um, non-glowing ordinary matter on our planet is an exceedingly exotic substance in the universe at large. So Earth, our planet, and our solar system is untypical compared to the universe in a physical sense. And so David actually um, has a really good example in here in, in the book about a typical place in space. Now, I won't go through all of it, but essentially if you observed a typical, cube, a typical cube in space, really trillions of kilometers away from Earth where we are today, um, a typical cube in space, one that is the size of our solar system, for example, the sky would be pitch black. The nearest star would be so far away that if it were to explode as a supernova and you were staring directly at it when its light reached you, you would not even see a glimmer. That is how big and dark the universe is. And it's extremely cold, as I said, um, at 2.7 Kelvin. And it is empty. The density of atoms there, out there, in a typical place in the universe is below one um, per cubic meter. That is a million times sparser than atoms in the space between the stars. And those atoms are themselves far sparser than um, in the best vacuum that human technology has yet achieved. And almost all the atoms in intergalactic space are hydrogen and helium, so there's absolutely no chemistry, no life could have evolved there, uh, nor any intelligence. In short, nothing happens or changes in that typical cube in the universe trillions of kilometers away. So you can see, in a sense, that Earth is a completely different place um, from the rest of the universe. So that's the first thing I, I, I guess I just wanted to, um, you know, really put out there that Earth is, it is special. I'll kind of, you know, in a, in, you know, like a very physical sense. Um, maybe later I can kind of talk about, you know, why, because there is a special life form being us, um, people who are creators of knowledge, why Earth becomes this incredible thing that uh, actually can uh, colonize the rest of the universe. But, but yeah, back to you, just to really answer the physical um, element of why Earth and, and human as a life form are very different. It's a fascinating answer and I'm really, um, I, I enjoy how excited you are about it. It's clear that um, his ideas have had a big influence on you. And there's a couple of different elements of the ideas. So not being um, a physicist, but being an academic, I do have a question I'll come back to later. But one thing that struck me when you were talking that I, I wanted to get my head around a little bit is you seem fascinated by the ideas that uh, Deutsch comes up with. You also seem fascinated by how he's come to those ideas. Um, and I think, you've, so you've talked a little bit about, which is this is the, how he's come to the ideas is probably the more academic perspective because you, you, sorry for everyone who's not in an academic circle, but if I mention the name Karl Popper, um, my PhD colleagues will know immediately who I'm talking about, but that concept um, of, Popper was a political philosopher and famously put forward the idea of, of um, falsifiability. Essentially, nothing is true. It just hasn't been proved false yet um, as the basis for um, scientific thinking. Um, and so that's one element I kind of wanted you to dig into a little bit because I'm really like being introduced to a new mode, a way of thinking about something can be extremely influential on, on you as a person when you read something and go, hang on, I never thought of things this way. This is mind blowing. And that's a different reaction to um, the conclusions about the nature of matter in 
the world and saying, well, actually, we've only experienced 20% of the matter available in the universe. And, oh, my God, that's ridiculous. Like, wait, wait. So when you're talking about experience, like that's, so I'm, I'm really interested in getting at um, how this book affected you in terms of ex- the way he's thinking and affecting your thinking and how the book affected you in terms of the conclusions he was drawing. Because I think they're a little bit different. Yeah, absolutely a great question. And uh, of course, it takes an academic to, to think about process effectively. Um, but that's something I'm very interested in. Um, so, so yeah, and, and this, this will draw kind of both from this book and David's previous book, which is quite um, The Fabric of Reality. Um, there's a chapter called Criteria for Reality, which, which is absolutely amazing if anyone wants to kind of do some follow-up on this kind of thinking. Um, so essentially, um, you, you, you're absolutely correct. Um, so in terms of problem solving and coming to these conclusions, the process is is actually um, vital. So it's it's what I said earlier, and you, and David kind of describes this in a five um, step process, and 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 you will see. I mean, in, it's kind of like a circular process, but it's also like a helix. So you know, progress is always goes up. Um, so it looks circular, but then you know you, you'll kind of see as I go through the process that this is how we achieve progress. So the first is, you know, uh, someone like Galileo identifying a problem that is um, a failure to accept um, the present reality or the explanations provided um, as sufficient, as in they are not compelling um, and, and, and don't have kind of good evidence behind them. Um, and, and as you say, Jacob, this is, you know, really a f- um, taken from Popper's, idea, you know, whole thesis on um, critical rationalism and falsifiability. So, um, and Taleb, by the way, Nassim Taleb has a really good book. Uh, I can't remember whether it's Antifragile or Skin in the Game, but essentially it's Via Negativa, you know, sometimes reducing... Reducing something is, is the optimal outcome. Sometimes it's not about actually getting a particular thing. Um, so reduction can be a, a thing of its own. And I think you'll see this process too is a, a little bit like that. So the first is, as I say, Galileo. Someone like Galileo um, is, uh, you know, finds the current explanations um, inadequate to explain um, a phenomenon. Uh, so we'll call it the problem. Um, or David calls it the problem. And then someone like Galilei will offer a different um, explanation. So this is conjecture. Um, so in Galileo's case, that was offering um, a heliocentric um, theory, um, which essentially was around um, planetary motions um, being in, or, well, he says circles, and then later we corrected that to orbits and ellipses. Um, and um, the Earth <laughs> was the one actually uh, revolving around the sun, not the other way around. So that's the second step, conjecture. And then once you have uh, those kind of explanations, um, then you put them out in the world and um, they have to stand against the existing explanations out there or um, alternative explanations. And some of that might be through... Um, you know, conducting experience, but not necessarily so. Uh, it, you know, it's about really removing the worst explanations and, and seeing what um, remains. And and by that process, so you arrive at number four, which is you've eliminated the erroneous theories um, and then you only have the ones that haven't been proving wrong yet, as you say. Um, and then... In that, someone else comes along and says, oh, well, we need a, um, a better explanation um, and, and then finds a new problem. So that's the fifth step. And then you think it's not actually a circular process. It's, it's actually this is a helix. So this is like on a Z-axis, you actually end up, you know, one, uh, identifying a problem, two, conjecture, three, um, you know, offering it out into the world for criticism against other forms of explanation, and then four, eliminating um, the erroneous theories, and five, 
um, then someone else coming along and says, uh, well, we uh, think there's a problem with that explanation. And this is how human progress, in a sense, um, occurs. And in that sense, David's um, meta conclusion in this book, The Beginning of Infinity, is that um, human progress is unbounded, you know, um, because you can go through this process ad infinitum. So that is, yeah, the process I hope that describes. Um, and I'm, I'm you're, you're right, Jacob, I, I, that is a great mental model. Um, and for me, you know, is now kind of a lens through which I look at most explanations that are offered. So on the second part of the question, because um, I, I, I'm interested in the, the conclusions, because I, I think like the process is, is, is kind of one thing, but also um, it's a different pro prospect to read a work of Karl Popper and understand his process. It's another thing to take David Deutsch, who's essentially applying such a process to the whole world and universe. Um, so I'm kind of, I'm interested in, if you could provide just a little snapshot of, other than the little bit you just given before around, you know, matter, was there something else that you just, you kind of read it and you just went, oh, that just turned my world upside down. I didn't, you know, this conclusion, this thing that is kind of scientifically proven, but I just didn't know before. Yeah, absolutely. And and look, it does relate to the um, the idea of progress, which I think we're both optimistic people who believe in um, progress and I'll just outline that um, kind of thought process. And now just to kind of put um, some flesh on that. So um, the, the people who... Uh, say Earth is a special place and the biosphere was designed um, in a particular way to support life form, um, actually, like, haven't thought through their process. So David describes um, the Great Rift Valley, for example, um, in its natural form. So this is kind of, you know, where we've sort of emerged from um, uh, notionally humans. Um, the biosphere there, for example, it's, it's not naturally habitable. Um, so this idea that the Earth's life, the Earth is a life support system, is actually completely false. What makes us unique, applying that thought process, is our capacity to generate knowledge. So we've created knowledge. That is what has converted the habitat to a comfortable one. So the Great Rift Valley, from which we emerged, it lacked a safe water supply, medical equipment, comfortable living quarters. It was completely infested with predators, parasites, and disease organisms. It frequently injured, poisoned, drenched, starved, and sickened their inhabitants. So in this sense, humans are actually quite unique um, in terms of creating knowledge and therefore for being uh, designers and, um, and builders. So just like going back to that, this idea of like creating knowledge that, you know, that's, that's the spark. You know, um, all our other life forms are not able to do that. And, and it's really worth thinking critically about, about that because that, that means we can, like progress is um, infinite and human knowledge is unbounded. Um, for example, people had dreamed for millennia of flying to the moon, um, David says, but it was only with the advent of Newton's theories about the behavior of invisible entities, such as forces and, um, and so on and so forth, that they began to understand what was needed in order to get there. So it's our ability to explain the world, um, first explain the world and go through that process that I um, just described earlier. That's what enables us to control the world. So in a sense for humans, unless the laws of nature forbid it, you know, um, whether that's physics, biology, or um, chemistry, everything is achievable provided we have the right knowledge. Um, so by contrast for every other species for, on Earth, um, we can actually just determine its reach, you know, its bound, its act maximum capacity um, in, in its ecosystem simply by making a list of all the resources and environmental conditions um, on which its biological adaptations depend. 
in the unique case of humans, just going back to that early example of the Great Rift Valley, the difference between a hospitable environment and a death trap depends only on what knowledge humans have created. So humans in this unique way, David says, can convert anything into anything, provided the laws of nature allow it. So some, like just to apply some criteria for, for humans to achieve that um, indefinitely. So this is why we are at the beginning of infinity. Um, so we need at least three things. Um, access to matter. Uh, we need raw materials and we need energy. And, um, and then we need to create evidence basically on how we can use each of those things. Um, so they, they're really like a thought experiment is a contemporaneous thought experiment is really there's nothing stopping us then setting up from setting up self-sufficient colonies on the moon and elsewhere in the solar system um, and then eventually other solar systems. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that people can't get their heads around, myself inclusive. Um, and of course, there will be problems um, and we don't know specifically which problems, but I guess the point there is if you go through that process, all problems are soluble, right? Um, so all people in the universe, once they've understood enough, that is create the knowledge, to free themselves from parochial obstacles, we all have essentially the same opportunities. Um, so humans may colonize other solar systems by increasing the knowledge, um, their knowledge, and we can control ever more powerful physical processes. Um, and, and, you know, there's a number of thought experiments that David has in there, but, but I, like, I hope that provides a, a really good summary of, of kind of why I think um, this book has like altered my worldview on what is possible and, and certainly the case for optimism. Fantastic. Thank you for that. I, it's, a, it's a really interesting discussion and it's um, really well discussed given how complicated and extensive the material you're working with uh, is. Um, so on that note, we will wrap up the podcast. Uh, Amal, it has been a pleasure. Um, and... Uh, the books we spoke about today were David Deutsch, The Beginning of Infinity, The Explanations That Transform the World, and J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Right. See you, mate. See you, Jacob.